You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 15. Have you ever had any close calls or near misses while doing outdoor photography? I sure have, even though I think my outdoor skills and attention to preparation and safety are fairly decent. Well, today we're sitting down with Courtney Harvey, who is an instructor, certified wilderness first responder, a wilderness EMT, and a search and rescue team member to talk with us about all things related to safety in the outdoors. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. If you've been tuning into the podcast lately, you've heard me mention the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, which is open for entries until September 1st. There is even a youth category for which submissions are free. So if you know any young photographers who might be interested, please pass along the information. You can learn more about their submission requirements, including what post-processing methods are accepted and other important information at naturallandscapeawards.com. And they're kindly offering you as a listener of the podcast 15% off your entry fee when you use the discount code OPS15 for Outdoor Photography School 15 at checkout. So again, for 15% off your submission to the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, enter the code OPS15 at checkout. And best of luck. Hey, everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. And I'm really excited to bring you today's guest, Courtney Harvey, because she's going to help us know how to connect with nature in a safe and responsible way. Now, we talk a lot on this podcast about respecting nature. And while that can mean finding ways to protect it, It may also mean having a healthy fear of it. Things can go wrong rather quickly, even with the best laid plans. And whether you are an experienced outdoorsman or outdoors woman, or are just starting to spend more time in nature with your camera, the information we cover today will help you be the most prepared and to know what to do if things go wrong. Even though I consider myself fairly experienced when it comes to safety in the outdoors, I have had my own close calls. So once I slid on glare ice and almost fell off of a cliff, and the thing that actually saved me was using my camera and tripod as a makeshift ice axe, which I used to grab onto a downed tree to stop my fall. I have also fallen through the ice while photographing a stream in the winter. And in fact, that experience was part of a video tutorial I did on YouTube on exposure compensation. So you might have seen it. And I've also run out of water while hiking and have been worried about dehydration. And these types of experiences have served as good reminders that we shouldn't let photography get in the way of safety. Courtney and I talk about safety preparation steps to take before trekking out into nature, whether that's a local trail or an extended stay in the backcountry. We talk about gear and clothing and wildlife, fire and water safety tips what to do if you get lost, and a ton more. It's one of our longer episodes, so let me just give you a quick background on Courtney before we jump right in. 
Courtney's love for hiking, rock climbing, skiing, and camping was instilled by her parents at an early age. Her passion for outdoor recreation grew from there to include more remote activities like backcountry skiing, orienteering, and backpacking. In graduate school, she studied strength and conditioning, and in 2015, she took her first wilderness first aid course. Shortly thereafter, she joined the search and rescue team in Killington, Vermont, got further certifications as a wilderness first responder, a wilderness emergency medical technician, and then as an advanced EMT. She continues to serve on the search and rescue team and now also teaches CPR, first aid, and wilderness first aid for the Stone Hearth Outdoor Learning Opportunity School, which is also known as SOLO. And she teaches wilderness leadership and safety skills to teenagers at the Okimo Mountain School. And so without further ado, please enjoy my super information-packed conversation with Courtney Harvey. Courtney, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I already gave our listeners a, a little bio on your certifications and training and whatnot in the introduction. Um, so I was wondering if you could just take a moment and share a little bit more about you, you know, like what's your origin story? Where are you from? And and how did you get interested in wilderness safety training? Yeah, um, so I grew up in Killington, Vermont. And nice. My my parents are both very into the outdoors, so I grew up rock climbing and hiking and skiing. Um, but I didn't really fall in love with all of that stuff like on my own until I was in grad school. Um, I I rode horses all the time. That's what my undergrad degree is in, actually, horse training oh, wow. and animal science. And then mm-hmm. um, I went to grad school for strength and conditioning. And when I was doing that, I got really into rock climbing. My dad and I did a really cool cross-country trip, backpacking and climbing out West. Mm. And, um, doing that, I realized that I wanted to have experience in case of injuries. Like my dad got altitude sickness when we were way out in the, um, Palisades uh, up in the like high Sierras in California. And so I, I wanted to take a course. So I came home, um, for my second year of graduate school in 2015 from out West. And I, I took a a short course. And when I graduated, I went to solo in Conway, New Hampshire and Mm -hmm. got my wilderness first responder and my emergency medical responder certifications. Nice. Um, Joined the local search and rescue team in Killington and started, started with that in 2017, I joined the, um, regional ambulance, which is our local ambulance service. We do 911 and transport for the like greater Rutland County area. We respond to like 11 different towns. Wow. And I wanted the experience medically because we we do get a bunch of call outs for our search and rescue team, but not a ton. So yeah. I wanted to get that experience. And I eventually over the course of a couple of years um, earned my advanced EMT and I've had that for oh, going on three years now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So what I'd like to do today is give the listeners a a good overview of what sort of precautions they should be taking when heading out into nature to do photography. And we have all levels of outdoor enthusiasts uh, who listen to the podcast from those who are just starting out and might be a little uncomfortable or unsure about being out in the wilderness to those who do spend a lot of time in the outdoors, but maybe haven't taken the time to learn how to be safe. 
to those who are experienced backpackers and hikers. And I think whatever level uh, people are at, we can all use a refresher on safety in the outdoors. And while I think that many people would agree that safety and preparedness are important, especially while out in nature, it's also easy to think like, well, nothing's going to happen to me, or I'm just going to take a quick day trip, or, you know, the weather seems like it's going to be fine, so I don't need to pack any extra stuff. And and they might not uh, be actually mindful of taking some really good precautions. So to start off, I'm curious, with your experience with being on a search and rescue team, what are some of the more common injuries or mistakes you've seen people make as a result of not being prepared or knowledgeable about the risks and hazards involved in different activities that they are participating in? Yeah. Um, so the most common, so like winter and summer, we kind of have two different things that happen. In, yeah. in the wintertime, we get a lot of call outs for people who are skiing on Killington that think, oh, I just want to, like, it's great powder. We have great deep snow. I'm just going to take a quick run off the trail here. Mm. And they think, well, you know, it can't be that hard to get back on the trail. And they'll go past an out of bounds sign thinking that they'll easily come back in bounds. And on the backside of Killington, if you do that, um, it's really easy to not be able to come back. And we pull somewhere between 15 and 25 people off the backside of Killington in an area we call Lenny's gut every winter that oh are gosh. a rental year, no water, no food with them, no headlamps. And they, they always do this in the afternoon <laughs> right? and they always call us when the mountain closes is at like four, four 30 as it gets dark. Cause they're scared and they're in the woods and the snow is up to their hips right. and Lenny's gut is really steep. So even if you take your skis or snowboard off, you physically can't hike back up to the top. And wow. you don't really know which way to go. Um, cause it's like kind of gentle and beautiful and it's really easy to be like, Oh, this is so nice. I'll just take a run over here. And then yeah. all of a sudden it gets steep and deep. Yeah. Um, so we get a lot of that in the winter time. We actually have some sleds stashed in common choke points for people in oh. case someone gets injured so we can hike up and grab our sled instead of having to drag one up with us. That's a good idea. We haven't had to, pull a sled out for anyone yet, but we do bring snowshoes out and bring people down all the time. So, wow. um, and then a similar thing happens to us in the summertime on one of the most popular hikes, Deer Leap, uh, which oh, is I know that also one. in Killington. Yeah. Yes. And people go up to the peak and then they wander a little bit because the woods up there are very piney and open. Yeah. And we have a bunch of signs um, that are posted, like turn back, this is not a trail and people will walk down and they get stuck on top of a cliff and it's too steep. <laughs> and oh, no. slippery on the pine needles to come back up. And it's not a hard oh, climb. Wow. If you're a rock climber, it's like a five, five, four, five, five, like a five fun climb. Yeah. Um, but to a non-rock climber, it is, it is tough. And it's easy to slip and fall on something like that without the proper shoes and experience or even with the proper shoes and experience. So yeah. we've had a couple injuries there and a good handful of people that we've had to climb up and pull down. We actually have a training next week to practice, uh, hasty rescues from that area where we we hike around rappel into them put them in a harness and then rappel them down wow so it seems like the themes here are are people going where they're not supposed to go <laughs> mostly those are the people we say or um we've had people hike in the fall that aren't accustomed to the trail or accustomed yeah. to hiking 
and the leaves get thick when they come down in the fall and they'll lose the trail and just wander in circles in the woods for hours. Yeah. Um, yeah, So kind of knowing, knowing where you're headed before you go is definitely a big thing. Yeah, for sure. And we don't get a lot of injuries. One of the main injuries we get um, are people twisting their ankles. We've Mm, all been there. Yeah. Um, That's to some level. (laughs) And just knowing um, what your body is ready for is definitely a good one. Yeah. So we've had some people who have had broken bones due to the fact that they weren't conditioned for the trail that they hiked on and their body just kind of gave out on them. Yeah. Instead of it sense. being a traumatic or accidental trip. Right. Yeah. Well, I remember doing some hikes over in the White Mountains that um, like, especially in the presidential range where there's just so much scree at the top and that just makes mm. for such tricky footing. It's just not not the same as hiking in the Green Mountains, for instance, where the trails are more like rooted and, you know, rocky, but nothing like they are in the White Mountains. And so, you know, for people who are used to one type of terrain, you know, should probably do some research before they head to another one, um, because it might be something like that where they're like, oh, I should really have brought my hiking pools and I didn't think of it, (laughs) you know? Yes. It's always good to prepare with that kind of thing. And, and like you said, like prepare ahead of time, like with checking for weather, um, you know, you want to make sure you know what you're going into. It doesn't always stay sunny, especially yeah, in the White Mountains. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm curious, this past year with the pandemic and everything, has that affected, uh, you know, overall search and rescue efforts this year? Have you seen an increase in cases because more people are spending more time outside? Uh, hmm. I've, I wouldn't necessarily say a huge increase in search and rescue callouts. There might have been a small one. I'd have to actually pull up our chart. But there is a major increase in erosion on the trails and congestion for sure. Okay. Yeah. That is very easily noticed. It's amazing how that can be noticed just within a year. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. So so let's say that someone is planning to do a day hike into a remote wilderness area to do some photography. And so, you know, let's assume that they're not going to be far from civilization, but it's unlikely that they'll have cell service. Mm-hmm. Um and they're already packing a fair bit of camera gear and they're trying to figure out, well, what else should I pack to be safe on the trail without, you know, adding a lot of extra weight that may or may not be necessary. So in terms of um, things that people should be thinking about, like in gear, clothing, any safety items or food and water and like things of that nature, what would you recommend? Yeah. Um, so if I'm thinking about what to bring on a hike, if it's a like day hike versus overnight. Um, do you want me to touch? I can touch on both. At the same yeah, time. let's talk about both for sure. Um, so when I'm packing um, just for gear and stuff, if I'm going out for just a day hike on a trail that I know well, um, and I know that I'm going out early in the day and I'm going to be back early, uh, like say it's a, a mile round hike and I'm going out at 10 a.m. and I know that I'm, or three miles even, and I know I'm going to be back by lunchtime. Um, yeah. I'm going to bring less than I would if I didn't know the trail or was going out in the evening. Yeah, so so for an early morning day hike, I would always make sure I have my phone, even if there's no cell service. Um, but I always put it on airplane mode if okay. I know there's no cell service or low battery mode if there is cell service and sometimes even airplane mode. Because if you need your phone for some reason, you definitely don't want it to be dead when you go to use it. For sure. Um, some some trail snacks. 
uh, and when I pick trail snacks, I try to pick things that are packed with carbohydrates and Mm -hmm. some like salty snacks. And so like a nice trail mix, like M&M's pretzels kind of thing. Yeah. And, and water. I'm definitely going to bring a little more water than I think I need if I'm going to be out for a while. Mm -hmm. And I'll pack a small first aid kit and I can go over what I pack for first aid kits. That would be great. Okay. Um, I always bring a layer. So if it's summertime, um, I have this, this cool jacket. It's called a Houdini jacket. It's from Patagonia. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a really thin, it packs up, it fits in my hand and I have like child sized hands. Um, (laughs) it, it packs up really small and it's, it's a great windbreaker and it's water resistant. It's not a raincoat by any stretch, but if it's like a misty day with like thick clouds, it'll keep the water off you. Mm-hmm. It will keep you warm on a peak. It'll be 70 degrees with a strong wind and you won't feel the wind at all. It warms you right up. Oh, that's nice. um, so that's what I throw in if it's a nice summer day and I'm not expecting terrible weather to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I always bring extra socks mm-hmm. because your feet get wet. You need to get them dry. Yeah. Um, so I just, I keep an extra pair of socks in all my hiking bags. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they just kind of live there. And what are there? Do you have like a favorite kind of sock that you like for hiking? Um, I, I'm a huge fan of the darn tough socks. And, Me too. <laughs> um, yeah. I just love their socks. And then I have smart wool as well. I try yeah. to stick to wool socks. I have wool running socks that are short. I have like medium height ones. I have tall ones and I'll change out what socks are in my bag. Um, depending on the season. So in the winter time, I have thick, like winter style socks that come like mid calf. And then in the summertime, yeah. I have like a thin lightweight mid calf one that I throw in. Um, yeah. And do you, do you want to talk a little bit about wool versus cotton? Yeah. Uh, so I, <laughs> the you want to have a, a clothing packed that is going to be warm when wet. So cotton is cold when wet. Um, yeah. Maybe if you were hiking in the desert, that would be a good thing, <laughs> right. but n- not at night because the desert gets really cold at night. Uh, yeah. So, so wool is a really great layer. Um, I can't wear wool on my body because I get hives. I break out in hives. So oh, I have to get fancy. <laughs> I can wear wool on my feet, but I wear um, capoline and fleece. Um, the better sweater material is which a bunch of different companies make them. They call it better sweater. It's like a yeah. thick knit. Um, that actually stays quite warm when wet as well. Okay. I'm and not those familiar are with of, that one. Yeah, it's, it's great. I have a bunch of sweatshirts in, in better sweater material. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I try to, I try to find materials that are not cotton. And then there's, of course, like synthetic t-shirts and things like that. Right. That you can pick if you have a, a sensitivity to wool. Otherwise... Yeah wool all the way <laughs> yeah yeah totally agree um in the the springtime and the fall even if it's a nice 70 degree day that weather changes so quick and the peak of a mountain is always colder than than the, the base so mm-hmm. um if it's spring and summer i throw a pair of light gloves a hat and a insulating layer in my bag as well yeah just in case maybe a midweight puffy or maybe like a light sweater type material like a fleece yeah if you can wear wool a wool layer um because it just you know if i was to go hiking on even a day like today where the sun's coming out a bit it's probably 40 degrees on the peak and 60 at the base right 
Yeah. And especially when you're hiking up, you're probably sweaty, right? And yep. so you're get you get to the top and you get above the tree line and all of a sudden the wind's blowing and it's e- really easy to and get cold fast. It is. That that sweat dries and and it's hard to stay warm. Um yeah. always start your hike cold because of the sweating thing. Mm-hmm. That's Obviously a good in tip. the middle of summer that's not possible, but <laughs> in the fall, spring, winter, always start cold. It's a fun little saying called be bold, start cold. Oh, nice. <laughs> so basically don't don't pack all your layers on at the bottom of the trail. Put them in your bag. Yeah. Start a little bit chilly. You shouldn't be freezing, but you should be a little bit chilly standing still. You yeah. should want to move. Um, otherwise, you're just going to overheat and die immediately. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of your layers are going to be wet and then you won't get warm at the top. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it comes to... My puffy jackets, I always pick um, hydrophobic down. Mm, okay. Yep. Um, because then if it's raining out, your down doesn't condense as badly and you still stay warm. Yeah. Um, it's not foolproof, but it helps. Yeah. <laughs> and so I do, I have a bunch of different weights of puffy coats. I have everything from like a light um, pullover type puffy jacket that is, um, maybe like 50 to a hundred fill and then like the 150 to 200 fill or 300 fill type for like a midweight and then all the way up to like a five, 450 or 500 fill for my heavyweight. Mm-hmm. And they're packable, which is why they're a great choice. Yes. They yeah. Small in your bag. Right. Cause the way I understand it works is that the down, um, pa- uh, it, it uses your body heat to mm-hmm. insulate you. And so it's basically like an air, barrier um it kind of traps your your body heat in and so when you squeeze it down you're getting rid of all that air and that's why they can compress really well yeah you have to be producing heat to warm one up so you put on and that's why when you wear a puffy coat you want to have a little bit of space you want it to be touching you um but you want to have it can't be really tight like pulled taut because then you won't have any space between the feathers for the heat to be held right it's like a for thermodynamics it's radiation technically because the heat that you're radiating out of you then stays around you gotcha nice little warm bubble right um like at in if you're out camping and you have your down sleeping bag you could heat up a bottle of like a thermos or Mm -hmm. have if you have a warm thermos of water put that in your sleeping bag it'll warm your sleeping bag up before you get in and then take that Mm, warm thermos out (laughs) yeah (laughs) right (laughs) uh so that um, if I'm hiking near the evening time or afternoon time, even if I just mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm definitely going to be back before sundown. I pack a I have a whoopie. It's called, it's called a whoopie. I get them from a company called Group One. You can find them on a bunch of different sites now. A whoopie is basically like a down blanket. Um, OK. And how do you spell whoopie? W-O-O-B-I-E. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was introduced to these because my husband has a military background and that's where he originally was introduced to them. Okay. And so we get them from group one whoopies, which is a, a company out. I, I think he's based out West. Um, yeah. Really nice guy, small company, hand makes everything. Oh, nice. Um, so the order can take a long time, but worth it. Yeah. And they pack up tiny too. If you get a, get one that's like a midweight or a lightweight and it's smaller, um, you can get a big one as well. But we have a small, I have a small one and it packs right into my bag. So if I'm going out near, if I'm going to be overnight 
possibly overnight or late just in case. Cause you know, it, when you get hurt, it's always bad timing. Um, yeah. so I like to make sure I have a headlamp, a layer and my whoopee with me so yeah. that I know that if I sprain an ankle or break an arm or something and I can't walk out, uh, I can hunker down and I'll be fine waiting for the search and rescue team. Cause though the search and rescue teams try to be quick, they call us. So you call 911 and then the state police or probably in mean, Vermont, it's the state police. They mm-hmm. take the call. They contact the head of search and rescue for the state who looks at the map and sees what region they're in. Then he calls the head IC of that region's search and rescue team. Mm-hmm. And that guy then lets the team know to head out. So from 911 call to us getting boots on the ground can be anywhere from like 30 to an hour, 30 minutes to an hour. Yeah. Um, and that's if we know the location. It could be longer if we have to kind of play a triangulating game to figure out where you might be. Right. And and then we have to hike in. So you're probably going to be hanging out for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Right. Yeah. So do you recommend um, people bring, you know, like a um, like a Garmin inReach type of device for situations? If you yeah. know how to use a a GPS or if you have one of those like Garmin things where it like pings. We use um cell phone pinging as well. Oh cool. Okay. Um, yeah. Which is a little bit faulty in Vermont because the towers are on top of mountains. So it kind of creates this umbrella effect. Yeah. So we've had before someone lost in say uh like the Woodstock area, but their phone pinged to the nearest tower, which is on Pico. Oh bye. And then we talk to their family, find out where they were hiking and we're like, oh yeah that's like a half an hour away (laughs) yeah Yeah. and we we find them and we haven't not found anyone which is great but sometimes it can take a little bit to figure out where you might be um make sure someone knows where you're going and when you plan to be out yes always tell someone so that if you don't show up and then let them know you made it out because we've had people call before and they're like a concerned friend they're like uh you know so-and-so said that they'd be out of the woods Saturday morning and it's Saturday afternoon and they're not answering their phone. And then we find out that they decided to stay an extra night and didn't tell anyone or they got out of the woods and forgot to tell the person that they got out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's not good. Getting people worried for no reason. (laughs) Yeah. And and it's good when it's for no reason, but that's true. Yeah. It's avoidable. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes I'll even, um, like if nobody's around for me to tell where I'm going, mm-hmm. I'll just leave a note on my counter just to, yeah. you know, even though it feels like I'll, I'm just leaving it for myself when I get back. Yeah. Uh, you know, it feels a little bit like overkill, but I have I have gotten lost before and, you know, have found my way back out. But it, it is scary and it does make you, you know, when you find yourself in situations like that, you're like, oh, you know, this actually is such an easy, simple thing to do is to write down where I'm going on a post-it note and you know, just get rid of it when I come back, you know, yeah. uh, it's just a little step that that can help save your life even. Absolutely. I usually, um, I'm very close with my mom. I usually send a text to her or to my husband and I'm like, Hey, I'm headed to this trailhead. I'm doing this peak or I'm doing like this mileage and see you lunchtime or something or dinner. Yeah. And, uh, then if I don't show up, they will know. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so you were going to say you were going to talk a little bit about what you put in your first aid kit. Yeah. Um, 
So for my first aid kits, I made a fun, a fun chart of these. Um, so some essentials that I try to always have with me and I have just like a small, um, I have just, just a small, like baggy bag. You can use like a, a, I used to use a Ziploc bag and I upgraded to a bag that has like pockets um, (laughs) so that it's not just a mess, but I try to keep two cravats, which are triangle bandages. It's like a handkerchief. Okay. A little bit bigger. Um, like if you were to take a handkerchief and fold it, so it was a triangle shape yeah, and make it bigger, that's okay. what, uh, what it looks like. It's just like a, it's called a cravat. Um, they're really inexpensive on Amazon. You can get, a, I have a couple boxes of 12 that I got. The boxes were like, I don't know, $10 maybe Okay, for 12 of them. Um, and I love cravats because they can be used for so much. They can be used to tie gauze on an injury. You can improvise a tourniquet. You can make a sling. You can build a splint. Um, and they're just very useful. Yeah. Um, and so I choose those because what I try to do with my first aid kit is that I try to pick materials that are multi-purpose so mm-hmm. that I can have a small one. So like yep. I don't pack band-aids. I pack a couple of a handful of nonstick four by fours, athletic tape and scissors, because then I can make any size bandage. Yeah, and I have that's... three things instead of 20 things. Right. And my athletic tape can double. I can tape my heels. If I have a blister, I can, I can tape like an injury. I can, um, use it to create, you know, stability for a joint. If I needed to like tape a joint, um, yeah. something I can buddy tape fingers. If I break a finger, it just creates so much more, um, versatility. Yeah. And then I carry vet wrap, which is, you can get it at CVS. Um, it's like a self-adhering kind of stretchy waterproof-ish material. Oh, um, I think I've I get seen it that. At, yeah, I get it at Tractor Supply because you can get colors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I come from the animal science slash equine right. world. So yeah. I grew up vet wrapping my horse's injuries and vet wrap's amazing. Like you cut your you skin your knee on a rock climb and it just won't stop bleeding throw like some nonstick gauze on it. And the vet wrap sticks not only to itself, but to your skin. And you can just kind of like pad the area. Oh, that's Um, nice. So I'll throw in some vet wrap, um, keeping. And then like, that's, that's my like bare minimum. Um, if you, and then like past that, if you have any medical conditions, make sure you have preparedness for those. Yeah. Um, like I have a lot of allergies, so I carry Benadryl and epinephrine, like an EpiPen mm-hmm. with me. Yeah. Um, and if you have, uh, you know, diabetes, bring some, have some just sugary snacks that are always in your bag. Um, if you have like a heart condition, make sure you have your aspirin or your nitro yeah. um, or something along those lines. So just kind of like, to name a couple, there's many more, like maybe you have epilepsy or something. Um, make sure you have those meds and maybe just like a note in your med kit, or if you wear a medical bracelet yeah. so that someone that comes upon you, if you have a problem can help you without you having to talk to them. Right. Asthma, throw your inhaler in your backpack. Yeah, for I sure. have one yeah. of those. It just lives in my, I don't need it very often. So it just lives in my first aid kit. So I just have it. Yeah. In case. Yeah. Um, very good idea. So that's kind of what I pack. Um, for my essentials, if it's a high risk sport, like if I'm out backcountry skiing or mountain biking or rock climbing, I throw in a tourniquet. Mm-hmm. 
rolled gauze, a Sam splint and two more cravats so that I have a total of four. Okay. So it does make my pack a little bit. It does add a little bit, yeah. but that risk of me breaking a bone or having a, a worse injury is so much higher that I have like a little bit more stuff with me. Yeah, that makes or sense. Or a friend having a worse injury. So I try to have a little bit more with me in that respect. Yeah. Um, if I'm going on a backpacking trip, I then add some things that can clean my cuts and wounds. Because if I have a, a cut and it's a day hike, I'm just going to clean it really good with soap and water when I get home. Right. Um, but if it's overnight, I'm going to need to get on top of that sooner so that I don't get an infection. Right. Um, so I'm going to bring alcohol swabs and some hydrogen peroxide. And then forceps or tweezers, mm -hmm. triple antibiotic or Vaseline. Yep. And um, I would still have that like that like Sam splint or a couple extra cravats in there and rolled gauze because those are very useful. Yep. Like if you get a burns or hypothermia, you want to have rolled gauze so you can roll your fingers separately um, oh, so they don't yeah. get stuck together if they have blisters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, and, and for people who don't know what a, a, the SAM splint oh, right. uh, material yes. is, can you describe that? Yeah. Um, a SAM splint is a, it's by the company SAM, S-A-M in all capitals. Uh, they make a whole bunch of different medical equipment, but their splints are very packable. They pack up really small. They're kind of like a foam and foamy material with metal inside of it. And the, they're very bendable until you kind of fold the edges and then mm -hmm. they become rigid and you can change the size and shape of them very easily to fit someone's arm or leg. And they just help create a little bit of stability for an unstable injury. Yeah. Um, most of the time you can stabilize most injuries with just a sling and a swath with the cravats. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit hard to just kind of explain how to do those things, but if anyone right, is interested, yeah. they should take a course on that kind of stuff. Yes, yes, for sure. <laughs> play with the materials. <laughs> yeah. Because it does take some dexterity, like some practice to get used to building that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think keep a pair of rubber gloves or three in my bag. I have a little baggie of rubber gloves that say new and a baggie that says used so that if I use a pair, I can put it in the dirt, in the trash bag. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a good idea. And, and a notebook, I have a right in the rain notebook that if I'm going out on a bigger hike or an overnight thing, I have a, a right in the rain book in what I, what's called a battle board, which are pretty cool. What are um, they? It's, it's like a small notebook, like a, maybe, maybe five inches tall by like four inches wide. And it has a clear pocket on the front. And when you open it up, there's a, um, a slot where you can put a map in mm, where the okay. clear face would be. Yeah. And then it has some, it comes with uh, like dry erase markers. And then there's a spot to put your right in the rain book and a pencil. So you can write in your right in the rain book for notes. If you have like a patient or an injury, or you want to write down directions. And then if you need to mark on your topography map, you can do that in the dry erase pen oh, cool. and then wipe it off later. Very cool. So you're like writing on the map without writing on the map. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and they're very handy. I definitely got that as a search and rescue team member, but I just throw it in my pack if I'm doing something more complicated. Yeah. That's um, great. And I can also zip my compass right into it. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Definitely yeah. check that out. Yeah. They're pretty cool. They're called battle boards. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then that's mostly what I bring. 
Um, does any, like, do you have listeners that have dogs and bring dogs with them? Oh, sure. Yep. Um, so for my dogs, if I'm going, um, out hiking or anything, really, if you have a dog, um, for the most part, like all the same materials will work on the dog that work on the person. Yeah. Um, but say you have a dog that loves to eat stuff on the trail uh, and you're going on a bigger hike, it might be smart to have hydrogen peroxide with you because hydrogen peroxide when given to a dog makes it bubble in their stomach and they'll throw up what they ate. If you are not experienced using that, talk to your vet um, before doing that or using it or carrying it. Um, But we've had to use it so many times because my dogs live to eat things that they shouldn't. Uh, (laughs) It does work. Um, But yeah, consult a vet about that one. Um, But it's just like a good question to know to ask your vet. Yes, for sure. And then like, I always usually have a either forceps or a pair of pliers with me, um, like a Leatherman. Yeah. And so if my, my, one of my dogs got like five quills one time and I was able to pull them out myself. Oh, that's um, good. Again, you can talk to your vet about how to do those things. Yeah. And, um, if you have a big dog that you can't carry, so like I have two smaller dogs that weigh between 40 and 50 pounds and I can put them on my shoulders and carry them. Yeah. But my German shepherd, I can't just pick up and carry. He weighs like close to 80 pounds. Yeah. Um, and I can't carry him for very long or get him on my shoulders very effectively. Right. Yeah. So, um, having a sling that you can put your dog in is always handy. Um, and what kind of a sling would you recommend for that? There's a bunch of companies that manufacture them. I think you can even find them on like Chewy. Uh, just something okay. that's made for dogs that has like a way to put their legs through it and then sling it over your back. Yeah. Yeah. I have seen those before. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, we have a, a golden Definitely retriever who's awesome. almost a hundred pounds. So he, there's no way I can carry him out. Yeah. <laughs> and a it's big so boy. rare that you need to. Yeah. Um, we had an incident. My husband and I had a bit of a train wreck one time uh, of an, of an adventure that I can tell you guys about later, but Cobalt, our German shepherd got injured on, on our adventure. And luckily he was able to walk out. Okay. But this past winter, the snow was so deep. I was out cross country skiing with my dogs and my, um, my, she's a mutt. She might, I think she's like border collie, maybe Catahoula or something. Mm-hmm. Um, she's about 50 pounds. She got tired in the snow cause it was up past her shoulders. And she's so good. I just, you put her on your shoulders and she wraps an arm around your, your, her paws around one arm and lays on your backpack and kind of like curls her tail and her back feet around you at the same time. Oh, and just sits there. I fell down one time and she didn't get off my back. She just sat there like, mom, you're going to get up, right? Like, I'm not getting down. I was like, Stella, honey, you got to get down so I can get up and get you a good again. But she is so chill. She just sits there. She's like, yep, I'm getting a ride. I have a princess. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is where I deserve to be. And after a little bit, she felt good and was able to go again. I always keep a little extra water for my dogs. Yeah. I have, um, I got from uh, the platypus company, I got a couple of liter water bottles, a half liter and a liter one that are collapsible. So oh, that nice. they stop taking up room in my bag when they're empty. That's a great idea. Uh, which is perfect, especially on light days and runs and even on longer things. Cause then you're not always having the big solid bottle right. um, and a collapsible dog bowl. And then I always bring a baggie of kibble. Yes. So like when yeah. Stella got tired, I was able to give her water and snacks for fuel to get right. her going again and give her yeah. a full ride. 
Yeah, it's such a good reminder because obviously we bring snacks for ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're burning all these calories doing the hiking. It's good to remember that like, oh, my puppy's going to need some some calories too. Yeah. They're, they're also working. And uh, they run twice as far as we do if they're, yes. if they're not on leash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So speaking um, of, of water and food, um, for people who are doing, you know, it could be a single day, but definitely on a multi-day hike, um, you know, finding water sor- sources along the route and knowing how to properly uh, purify the water is important. So how can someone decipher whether a water source is safe to drink from and what are some methods of purification that you would recommend? Yeah. Um, so make sure it's not stagnant sitting water. That's definitely a big no. Yeah. Uh, you definitely want water from a moving source, um, mm-hmm. preferably uh, the best thing would be if the water is coming out of the ground. So it's being filtered already by rocks and you can get it right where it comes out, like a, a, a spring where it mm-hmm. comes free from the water, from the, um, from the earth is the most, typically the most clean. Um, but make sure it's the big thing would be make sure it's not a standing pool of water. You definitely want moving water. Yeah. Um, and then there's a bunch of ways to water purify. There's chemical, there's like the steri pens, like chemical ones would be like chlorine mm-hmm. um, or iodine tabs. Yeah. And both of those work. I've used the chlorine one a bunch. It's easy because you can just carry like a tiny little thing of chlorine and you just put in um, a couple drops for each liter and wait 20 minutes. Okay. And, and does then, it taste really terrible or? No, you just open the lid and let the fumes go away and then it tastes Okay. Fine. Yeah, yeah um, that makes sense. And, and then I carry iodine tabs as a backup. Um, I yeah. haven't actually had to use them. And then the SteriPen and straw filter thing, make sure yeah. you have extra batteries for anything like that that's battery run. And then there's also like the UV light. Mm-hmm. Again, make sure you have extra batteries. Yeah. And that's another thing. Like if you use one of the ones that take batteries, make sure you have a backup method like iodine or chlorine or knowing how to boil your water. Yeah. So under 7,000 feet of elevation, you want to have a raging boil for at least a minute. Okay. And above 7,000 feet, you want to have a raging boil for at least three minutes. Okay. Good to know. Yep. And then what about like filters? You know, um, I'm blanking on the name brand that there are a couple of gravity fed filtering processes. Yeah, those are pretty cool too. Um, I would say I haven't, I haven't personally used those, but I know some people that like using them. Um, yeah. Make sure you just have practiced it and know what you're doing before you go out and have a backup method in case whatever method you choose doesn't work. Right. Would be yeah. the best. Yeah. I think method. practicing beforehand is a definitely a good idea because if you're tired and thirsty and you finally find some water and your filtration method or your perf- purification method isn't working, you know, that could be really frustrating, <laughs> you yeah, know? And uh, yeah. And if you're so. going out on a trip where water might not be super accessible, bring a little more than you think you need. Yeah. And then for to, to get to water sources and map out where they're going to be on your hike. Don't yeah. just hope you run into them. Make right. sure you map that out beforehand. So yeah. you know where you should be getting water from. Um, and a good thing you can do too, is you can always talk to um, a, like if it's a park type situation, you can talk to like a ranger station or something mm-hmm. um, about where they recommend you get water. Yeah. Or yeah. like if a, like if you're in the Vermont, like the green mountain club would probably have recommendations. Um, or if you're in the Midwest or out West, a lot of times there's areas where you're not allowed to use the water and you have to pack your water. in. I've done that a few times where I've gone 
on like three, four day backpacking trips and I have to pack all my water. Oh, my word. Extremely heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's awful. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in areas that get droughts um, a uh, lot and have a, have a lot of wildlife. Yeah. Um, they need you to leave the water for the animals. So you have to pack in, pack out your water. Wow. Yep. So it's always yeah. a good thing to know as well. You're not always able to sterilize water on the on the right. hike. You might have to bring it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely good to know beforehand. Yes. So, so talking about packing in, packing out, um, you know, people who spend any significant amount of time in the wilderness are likely going to at some point need to deal with waste and elimination. <laughs> so what are some best practices to deal with trash, you know, food waste and also, you know, human waste while yeah. out in the backcountry? Um, I would say if you I'll go over it briefly, but if you people want more information, go to leave no trace.org. Yeah, because they have their big pages on how to do all this stuff. Yeah. Um, but for disposal of waste, so you want to make sure you leave absolutely nothing. So whatever you bring in with you, you should bring out. Um, that includes like toilet paper, tampons, um, things like that. You definitely have to bring that stuff. You can't bury it because little like chipmunks and squirrels, they'll get in there and get the toilet paper and like spread it everywhere and eat it, um, which is bad. So you can't leave toilet paper, um, even out there. And so make sure you're prepared with some baggies that you're going to use as trash bags for that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, if you're going out, it might be just, it's a good idea to just have a little baggie that you can use as trash bag in your first aid kit. That way it's just there. Right. And you just throw it in your pack. And then if you do have to use the bathroom out in the woods, even on a day hike, you have like a baby, a little toilet paper, if you feel like you need to have that with you. Right. Um, or you, and then you have a way to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, so if you're going to the bathroom, you should build a six to eight inch cat hole okay. in the ground. Um, so it should be six to eight inches deep and it should be like, I think it's four to six inches wide. Um, and then you have to bury whatever Yeah. goes in there. Um, and then you need to be at least 200 steps from water and you okay. should try to find a spot that is not highly trafficked. So like, a downed log or like, um, you know, a gradual hill is a good place. You don't want to go somewhere that water is going to sit. So like mm-hmm. on top of a little mound by a down tree is always like a, maybe a good place to be, yeah. but like a, a gradual slope somewhere people and animals aren't just going to walk all the time and deep in the ground and somewhere water wants it. Yeah. Um, and definitely make sure you're at least 200 steps from a water source and a trail preferably, but I mean, you might not be able to get that far from a trail, but make sure you're that far from a, um, far from a water source. Yeah. And there are areas even in the U S where you're not allowed to leave even your like bowel movement. You have to bring that out too. So oh, wow. make sure you look into that beforehand. Like the grand Canyon's a place. Um, there's like, if you go on river rafting, like big canoe trips, sometimes you have to pack out um, your waste. Yeah. So it's always good to do a little bit of, of research before you go to a place and yes, for sure. And do overnight camping to find out if you're allowed to bury your waste or if you have to not only carry out your toilet paper, but your feces. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, that requires Um, a little more preparation. (laughs) It does. A little more. Yeah. Yes, Um, exactly. But there are different methods to do that. And around here that I don't believe is a rule. 
Um, yeah. But I know it is in the Grand Canyon and yeah. some other places. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of that too. Like on Mount Rainier, I think too. I've yeah. heard people talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're staying in one place for a while, make sure you don't use the same bathroom spot twice. Oh yeah. That's a good point. Um, and if you need to stay in one place, you can always look into how to build latrines and things. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're picking out a place to camp, you want to make sure you are, I believe it's 200 steps from water still. Um, okay. and like 70 feet from a trail. Yeah. 200, well, 200 feet away from water. Um, try to use designated campsites and usually there's somewhere to get a permit for non-designated campsites. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Um, and fires can be a big thing when you're camping as well. Um, yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask you about forest fire prevention and, you know, how to be safe with campfires. Yeah. Do you have any, any tips on that? Uh, the best, the absolute best thing would be to only build a fire in a pre-designated fire pit. Yeah. Um, and if you're going out camping, have a camp stove and just use your camp stove with care. Make sure you set it up in an area where it won't tip over easily. And there's no like leaves have like a rock like set up some rocks or something so it's like contained um Mm -hmm. and safe Uh, plus that helps prevent you from spilling boiling water on you if it's on a nice stable flat surface yeah (laughs) and um yeah check out fire warnings and regulations for the area uh we've had people set off fireworks up on deer leap or start a little campfire up on deer leap in a non because we don't have any designated spots up there and last year we had a a little like a, a duff fire like the uh, duff is in like the uh, leaf pack. Yeah. There was a fire underneath that. It kept popping up in weird spots. It took like three days to get it put out. Oh gosh. With a huge effort. Um, yeah. So if it's not a designated area for fires, just don't do them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is the safest thing. And then say, say you have to do one for, you know, emergency reasons, you need to boil yep. water or something and you you have a pan, but you don't have a fire source a fuel right. source. Um, so let's say which you happens. make a, yeah, which happens. Let's say you make a makeshift campfire before you leave it. What are some things that you should do to make sure that it's fully out? Yeah. Um, make sure you, so when you're putting a fire out, like obviously you might not have a lot of water to be able to pour on it, but right. you want to make sure you've, you have when before you start it, make sure you have a good area that is free of debris and stuff. And there aren't like tree limbs right overhead that could catch on fire mm-hmm. and keep it small. And then um, you want to spread out the coals so they can cool and kind of turn them a few times uh, so that they're cold when you leave them and not like hot. Because like a pile of of burnt ash can be really hot in the inside right. for a while. So you want to use a stick or something to push that around and make sure it's cooled down. Okay, good. Um, so let's talk for a moment about wildlife. Um I, you know, I love to go hiking alone and a lot of times people will ask like, oh, well, aren't I worried about, you know, encountering bears or other wildlife and, and things like that. So um, I was wondering if you could give the listeners a few basic tips on how to avoid unwanted wildlife encounters and what to do if you do cross paths with something like a bear. Yeah, um, it really it does a little bit depend regionally Okay, where you are, because different animals in different areas respond differently to people. So the first thing you want to do is be aware, make sure you're not being completely silent because you don't want to accidentally sneak up on something. Yeah. Um, 
they might not hear you. Like, you know, an animal might not hear you, especially if you're on a mountain bike. Those things go downhill very quietly. Yeah. Um, so you want to make sure you're you're not totally silent. And it doesn't mean you need to like bang pots and pans and yell at the top of your lungs, but just right. kind of like maybe <laughs> hum to yourself or like, you know, don't try to walk completely silently. And I realize if you're out doing like photography, you might be trying to see wildlife. Right. So be quiet once you get to a spot, but maybe not like silent on the long part of the hike. Um, but mm-hmm. just be very aware of your surroundings so that you can leave space if you see an animal. Um, yeah. I've definitely had instances where I'm like, oops, I did not mean to get that close to you. I had no idea you were there. I was in North Dakota once backpacking and I had come, we'd come up to a river and I was just, we were walking on the riverbank trying to pick a good spot because there's no bridge. You have to ford the river, which is about mm-hmm. waist deep. So we were looking for oh, wow. a shallow-ish, not too ragey area to walk across. Yeah. And I'm just looking at the river walking down the bank. I almost tripped on a buffalo that was laying down. Oh my taking gosh. Taking a nap in the sun. Like I, I was <laughs> literally a foot away from walking into her. And I was like, <gasps> yeah. Hi. And I just like backed slowly away. And she, <laughs> she literally, she was so sleepy. She didn't care. She just looked at me with one eye and closed it again. I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. And I just like backed away and gave us a lot of space. And I yeah. made myself look small. So depending on the type of animal, you might need to make yourself look big and scare them away or like with a buffalo I don't want to challenge it so right with a prey animal I don't want to challenge the animal I don't want to make direct I'm a predator so like my eyes are based in front of my face right not to the sides so like prey animals typically have eyes based to the sides of their head so they can better see around to see for predators predators have eyes based in the front of their face right because they're always going forward looking for prey so um we're easily identified as predators yeah. as humans. Uh, so a buffalo is pr- technically a prey animal, even though they don't They're really massive. have a lot of predators. Um, <laughs> right. And so I don't want to make direct eye contact. I don't want to puff up my chest. I don't want to make loud noises. Um, I want to kind of make myself small and unthreatening and then get away yeah. slowly and smoothly. Um, so I just backed away and, and walked away slowly. Um, Along with the buffalo story, the next day we were coming back across the river and that same girl was on the shoreline and it was rut. So it was in the spring Okay, and there was a male around on the other side of the river as well. And this river is probably 150 feet wide. Wow. And we are like two, like 300 feet from getting to the river, like a football field at least. I don't know how long that is. It was long. Yeah. Um, we were really far. Like the buffaloes were just little dots. And he saw us or smelled us and he puffed up. He started snorting and pawing and jumping all around wow. and charging the river. Oh my gosh. Charging the edge of the bank. And so the grass was tall. So my friend and I kind of like made ourselves short so we couldn't see us in the grass. And we like went way left. We went like a quarter mile out of the way wow. and came across the river. So like two very different responses. But knowing what wildlife is in the area is like kind of the first thing. So, um, if you're hiking around in like the Northeast area, we've got black bear Mm -hmm. and fox, bobcats, fisher cats, coyotes, deer. Um, we have a good variety of animals, raccoons, 
Mm-hmm. Um, porcupine. Turkeys, porcupines. Yeah. I see lots of porcupines. Um, and for the most part, the animals around here, they don't want to mess with you. They yeah. hear you coming. They're going to make themselves scarce. We have moose. Mm-hmm. Moose are probably the most dangerous um, because they don't really see and hear that well. So mm. I've been told. And they don't really like company. So they definitely will get more aggressive. Yeah. Um, like I would rather run into a, a black bear than a, a moose for sure. Wow, Our black bears are shy creatures. They're going to make themselves really scarce. The only time you would really need to worry is if they have babies nearby. Yeah. Um, so knowing when animals have their babies mm-hmm. and knowing when ruts are. Yeah. Is also a good idea. So like, mama bears with babies you need to give or any animal with babies you need to give a bigger birth because the mom's going to try to protect them and they're yeah. going to see many things as a threat because their babies can't protect themselves right and in rut the males are going to be more aggressive so um, my husband's a big he's a pretty avid hunter um and it, he and his friend had some turkeys challenge their truck when they were out scouting for turkeys, they had a male Tom like puff up and like come at their truck. So sometimes you, like it's good to be aware of when yeah, it's really funny. It um, is funny. <laughs> you have to be aware of, of those ruts. So, you know, like, Oh, you know, it might be a lone animal. Well, it might be a male. So let's make sure we give it extra space. So it doesn't challenge us for rights to the female that's over there. Um, that right. You can't yeah. See. Um, yeah because they're gonna they're full of yeah (laughs) yeah they're gonna have behaviors that are just not normal for the rest of the season (laughs) right yeah so um kind of knowing those seasons and knowing when the animals are active versus not active but a lot of times they're going to be more afraid of you if you're out west you know brown big big grizzlies are going to be more dangerous so like bells and things so they hear you coming so you don't surprise anybody they can get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about like bear the, spray? Like, yeah, you can absolutely carry bear spray. Yeah. Um, not a bad idea. Good to have a good deterrent. Um, I've been told that I, I haven't actually encountered any black, any grizzlies or mountain lions when I've been out West. Yeah. I have seen a lot of moose and other animals, marmots i had a marmot try to steal my lunch one time um (laughs) but no no grizzly encounters thankfully yeah you know you're not really supposed to challenge them you're supposed to back away and and make yourself scarce yeah mountain lions will stalk you and the best thing with mountain lions as i haven't had to do this either but is to they don't they want easy prey so you don't want to bend down because then you're easy prey to pick up a rock but if you have things you can throw at them and make yourself big and scary as you like back away and get out of the way. Yeah. Um, so you don't want to challenge them to a fight, but you also don't want to be like, Oh no, I'm afraid of you. I'm easy. Pray. You can just kill me. Um, right. You want to be hard. Pray. That's leaving. <laughs> yeah. Quickly. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, but luckily here in the East, we don't have to worry about that stuff. Um, right. Yeah. It's, I've spent a lot of time in the woods here and I've never felt uncomfortable around a, wild animal yeah Um, yeah me neither it's been nice like yeah i can feel i feel pretty confident going out in the woods in the northeast yeah Um, Yeah, or even the 
southeast for the most part. I've seen black bear down in Virginia and they run away too. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen black bear a bunch of times, but it's always super fleeting. They're always like, yeah. like as soon as I'm like, oh, there's a bear and maybe I can get my camera. Out. Like by, by the time I've thought the word camera, they're gone. They're gone. Yeah. So, yep. yeah. So another thing that I think some people worry about is what to do when you get lost. So, you know, there's a couple of different um, scenarios that we could imagine here. But first, I'm curious, just um, would you say it's more common and maybe it is given what you had said earlier? Do you think it's more common for people to get lost or to get injured while out in nature? I, uh, considering the calls we get, we definitely get a lot more lost than we get injured. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, yeah. So the different scenarios that I can imagine is, you know, you're hiking alone and you get lost and you're just by yourself or mm -hmm. you're in a group and you get separated from your group somehow or you're in a group and the whole group gets lost. So what are some steps that people should take to best ensure that they're either found or that they can try to find their way back to a known location? Right. So prevention gets to be the number one thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so having your phone on that airplane or low battery mode and keeping it warm if it's cold out so it doesn't die on you. Mm -hmm. um, having extra batteries for your GPS if you use a GPS. Make sure you do drills with your GPS before you're out in the wilderness. Do like mm -hmm. parking lot drills. Do easy things that you could solve. Yeah. Um, and then see if you can do it with your GPS. Um, make sure you can can use your GPS and know the functions. Um, make sure you have like, I have a, a tarp, like it folds up very small that I usually bring with me if I'm doing anything where I could get lost or where I'm going to be out for a long time or on a search and rescue. Mm -hmm. It's very bright. It has a bright orange side and it has a reflective side. So okay. I can put that up in a tree um, or you know, make a shelter out of it and it's going to be bright so people can see it through the woods better. Yeah. Um, so whatever you have that can be, you should have something that you can hang up that would be bright for people to see. Um, and if you, if you can get familiar with using a map and a compass and have a mapping compass of the area, yeah, uh, that's always smart because it's a great backup. I mean, we've got all this great technology now, but that stuff can fail. Yeah. And knowing how to pencil and paper your way through something is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, and make sure you like when you go to a new area to hike, take a look at the trail and like, Oh, I'm going to walk by two lakes and I'm going to have to go left at these intersections and right at these intersections and have an idea of what you're going to do when you go out there. Um, yeah. so that you know what to do before you get to stuff to try to avoid the getting lost factor. Right. Um, and then that will tell someone where you're going. Um, if you're with a group, someone that's not in the group should also know when the group should get back. Um, yes. And if you get lost, so like we did all those things, but we still got separated and lost. Once you've made contact with 911 or someone, don't move. Just okay. stay put. Uh, that's the biggest thing that happens. I would say we get a triangulated dot on gps or something like that and then we get to that spot and the person's moved on oh. um and it's it's sometimes we'll give someone directions like okay we know where you are walk this way and actually there's been many times that we've been able to talk people back to a trail oh, over wow. the phone um especially on areas we know well and people usually get we our search and rescue team we spend a lot of time 
in the woods together, picking out easy spots to get lost. Yeah. And deciding what someone would do and then figuring out the way back. So oh, cool. we try to think like a lost person out in the woods and figure yeah. out where they might go and what they might do. Right. Um, so don't move and stay put to get your tarp and your bright clothes out, hunker down, get warm um, and and stay put. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a whistle, it's always good to have a whistle. A lot of packs come with one built right into the chest strap now. Blast. Yep three times on your whistle, three times in a row is you're like, I need help whistle and do three blasts every like three to five minutes because you want to try to catch people that are walking by. So just set a, like look at your watch or just sit there and every so often blast three times um, so that someone walking by would hear. Um, If you see a plane, you want to wave both arms because that means help. Okay. And if you need to move, go downhill and stay near a water source. So like a river, yeah. um, you want to follow the river and follow it downhill. Cause that's typically what is the easiest, um, too close to the river. There's a lot of like, there can be like erosion and blowout trees and you want to be just off of that where it's easier walking, but kind of follow its drainage. Yeah. And that could lead you to a town could lead you to a road mm-hmm. or it at least is the, um, general like typical lost person behavior that your search and rescue team is going to expect yeah yeah i have a a similar just a little story that i can tell that it was not i was not off in the wilderness you know in a really remote area but i was in a um you know a wooded protected area sort of between two towns Mm -hmm. and i was on my mountain bike this was a a total uh you know jv move on my part <laughs> but i had i was in graduate school and i needed a break from the lab and so i grabbed my mountain bike and while an experiment was running i i ran out and to do a, a quick jaunt in the woods and it didn't have water didn't have my cell phone didn't have any food cuz i was quote unquote just going to go out for like 45 minutes you know and uh i got lost which was crazy cuz i was on this network of trails but it was such a like squirmy network that I actually did get lost and I had no idea how to get back. And so I kept going and going thinking like at some point something might look familiar and I was just getting more and more deep into the woods and more lost. And I finally crossed some power lines and I was like, oh, power lines are going to eventually probably cross a road. So let me just mountain bike down the power lines and eventually I'll get to a road. And, uh, and I did. So, so yeah, following power lines or following streams, I think are kind of similar in that way. Yes, absolutely. If you have a power line you can follow, it's definitely going to eventually lead you to some sort of civilization. Yeah. It might take a while. Right. Yeah. Um, and it can be a little bit tough going, but just off the power line in the woods too, can be a little bit clearer. Yeah. Um, I had a similar event as well. Once my friend and I, a childhood friend and I were like, Oh, we're just going to do this short two mile hike. Well, we took a wrong turn. It was a hike on a trail, which then was onto four wheeler trails, which Mm -hmm. are not well labeled. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And they can be really complicated. So we actually went, we took a left when we should have taken a right. And then we took a later right. And on these four wheeler trails and we ended up going on a 10 mile hike that was supposed to be a two mile hike. And because we both hike all the time and knew the area and grew up there, we didn't bring anything. We didn't even have, we had a phone, but we didn't have cell service. 
we ended yeah. up walking to another town, like the next town over down this mountain ridge. I mean, and it was funny for us because we knew what mountain ridge we were on and we knew where we were going to get to. We just right. didn't really know how far, how long, or like, we didn't really know the how, but we knew where we were. Or like, we know we're on the top of this mountain range and we know we're walking, you know, basically we were walking like slightly South, but mostly East. Right. So we knew we'd end up in Bridgewater from Killington, but we didn't know when. Right. <laughs> or exactly where we'd pop out. Yeah. 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 So, so it, it can happen to any of us, really. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It totally does. You yeah. Know, especially if you know what you're doing and you get confident, which right. is what the two of us did. Yeah. Um, and then you make a silly mistake and then you're wandering through the forest for a really long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I so that, always be more prepared. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, me too. That 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 bike uh, incident definitely made me learn my lesson to at least always bring water and a phone with me, even if I think I'm just going to sneak out for a quick little, you know, trip. Um, yes. So when things go bad like that, you know, it's really easy to get flustered and scared and that can then start to affect our judgment and decision making. Do you have any suggestions on how to keep emotions at bay when yeah. somebody is dealing with a potentially dangerous situation? I do. Um, so assessing and managing risk kind of starts before you get lost. Yeah. Um, and it's a big part of the wilderness. Um, the best, the best outdoorsmen typically stay unexcited when they are in stressful situations, which is in, like staying not excited about something sounds weird, but mm -hmm. it can be very useful. Like, oh my God, I'm lost. Like, okay, well, I'm just a little lost. It's yeah. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, I think it does start earlier on. So, um, making sure you kind of keep that overconfidence in check and, and keeping your risk managed. So being flexibly inflexible or having a goal and having a, a point you want to reach and, um, knowing how to save it for another day. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, having the ability to quit and not just like quit, but just quit for the day. Like being able to say today isn't working. I'll try again tomorrow can be one of the hardest things for outdoors people and driven people to say, but it can be one of the most important things Yeah, because mother nature doesn't really care about you. Right. She's not going to, you know, not have that storm come in just because you want to hit the, the peak right? or wanted to get that perfect picture. Um, you might have to say, I'm going to have to wait for another day. And yeah. that's okay. Um, but that can help you avoid getting lost or in a bad situation where people have to come help you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's easier to say, like, if you're with a group, do what's best for the group. So if there's one person that's too tired or too sore, then you have to go back, right? Yeah. Because you don't want to split up. Um, if you if you're alone, it's harder to say that. It's easier to like push through. Yeah. But it's good to balance that risk. And you can even consider the team that would have to rescue you if something went wrong. Yeah. As the, the group. Um, right. Yeah, that's a good point. And you want to try not to rush. So even if you're in a situation where you're lost and you're scared, rushing to try to get 
found or rushing to find the trail again is only going to make you more lost and mm-hmm. walk in more circles. Yeah. It's like, take a minute, take a sit down, take a breath, have a snack and think about, you know, okay, I don't have cell service. That's not great. Maybe you need to walk and try to find some, maybe you need to just follow your way down the, down the hill until you reach something, um, down the, like a drainage. Um, maybe you can just stay put because you didn't go that far off the trail and someone will wander to you. Um, maybe you can mark, maybe you have like some tape and you can mark where you're headed. Um, so you can follow your way back. Mm Um, and, and just staying calm and, and thinking through it's when it comes to like assessing and managing risk, it can be nice to pick other um, goals than just like, I need to reach the peak um, and pick like maybe a mileage or an amount of activities you do in a day or an amount of time spent um, like a quality instead of like a quantity or a spot, a specific place. So you're more prepared to turn around and say, it's okay, I'll do it another day. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I have a good story that goes with managing risk. Oh yeah. That'd Um, be great. (laughs) So my husband is, uh, he was a Marine and Uh he is very, um, he kind of likes to suffer a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And he'd tell you that himself. Um, and he, when he has something in mind that he's going to do, like he's going to do it. So a few years back, he was doing a ruck march. He signed up to do a ruck march. It's this, um, fundraiser where you carry like 30 pounds on your back for a mile, uh, for a marathon distance, like what is oh my it, gosh. 21.6, um, 20, 26.2, 26.2. Thank yeah. you. I don't know where 21 came from. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a marathon. He walked a marathon with a weighted bag. It's this big wow. thing they do It's a ruck march in Boston. So he's training for it. Yeah. We're training for it over the winter because it's in the spring. So we did some snowshoes and we were like, well, the snow is really good. We want to go backcountry skiing. So we picked out a route through the woods that would take us about a total of 16 miles for a little bit longer mileage day. And we loaded his pack up more mm-hmm. and the uphill portion of it was, I think, 11 miles. And then the oh, downhill portion was six. Wow. And it was cold. It was January. It was probably the high that day was like six or something degrees out. Oh boy. It was sunny, like nice and clear. Yeah. Uh, We started early. We brought all three of our dogs, my Husky, um, who was 10 years old. My, cause she, yeah, she's 13 now. My, um, our German shepherd who was, I think four at the time and our mutt Stella, who was, I want to say like six. Mm-hmm. And she wears a jacket. So like Ackler and Cobalt both have double coats and they stay warm in all the temperatures, especially the Siberian Husky. Like she, the colder, the better. Yeah. Um, but Stella has one layer of hair. And so we always put a, she has a jacket and booties. So she was wearing both of those mm-hmm. to keep her paws and body warm. And we had all the dog snacks and all the water and we had a really good day, but it took us longer than anticipated to get to the point where we were going downhill. Yeah. Our plan was to get to the peak for the downhill by one or two o'clock at the latest. It was three thirty. Oh boy. So almost, it. almost dark. It was almost dark. Cause it was January. Yeah. And I was like, we could go uphill a half a mile and we'll be at the peak of Killington and we can ski 
down and have my dad pick us up and he'll bring us to the car because he worked his own business in Killington. He works in Killington. Yeah. I was like, I'll call him right now. And my husband, who is very like, I have to do my goal, right. was like, no, I'm not doing that. And I was like, Stella's cold, Acklark's tired. I'm ta- I, I think we should take the dogs and, and try it again another day. Like we'll come back and do the backside with a shorter skin and we'll take the lift up and do the backside on its own. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, I'm going without you then you can go with the dogs. And I was like, well, I'm not letting you do that. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> we're bonking, we're tired and bonking means like run out of energy and fuel. And yeah. so we're sitting there like eating some more leftover pizza. And I'm like, it's like, this is not going to work out. Like we need to turn around. And he's like, no. So <laughs> I wouldn't let him go alone. So I went with him and this became like, just the most horrible trip. (laughs) Yeah. We were skiing down and we got some great turns, but my Husky was tired and she stopped cooperating. I had to put her on a leash. Oh man. Um, and at this point, then we wind up, you know, we're exhausted. So we made a bad decision on our navigation and we took the wrong side of a drainage. Oh no. That we knew not to do, but we did it and you can't get back across. So now we're getting pushed way out from where our car is in the middle of the wilderness. At and night. I'm exhausted and it's getting dark. It's dusk at this point. Yeah. And I end up um, hitting, having a collision with our German shepherd. He oh, no. stopped in the middle of the trail and I couldn't stop in time and tried to avoid him, but hit him and he's bleeding everywhere from my, oh, my ski God. edge. So oh, we God. put a bandage on him and we still have like two and a half, three miles to get out. And it's five o'clock. Wow. And we're like, oh God. So it became this long epic where we were like sludging through the woods. And of course my headlamp died. So I'm going by, my dogs have glow collars and they're, um, they're, we have e collars for them because we have them off leash a lot. It's like, I call it their invisible leash. They're trained, um, to respond to just like a, a vibrate or a sound, um, in case they get distracted. I have a little more ability to be like, not the porcupine. Right. Um, <laughs> don't chase that deer. Right. And um so those have lights on them as well. So I'm Nate Nate's headlamp was working. My headlamp wasn't, but I'm I've got three dogs with very bright collars. So I just kept them near me. My husky's yeah. on a leash. And we had to ford through a river. I can't remember if it was two or three times anymore, but we had to carry the dogs across. So we have to throw our skis, put the dogs on our shoulders and shimmy across down logs. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It got really <laughs> sketchy. Yes. It was really, it was cool. I was like, we're going to have to call our own team to come get us at some point. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we made it out and Cobalt was fine and the dogs were fine. And really we were better for it. Like we learned our lesson. I yeah. was, well, actually, I'm not totally sure. He did say yesterday that he would do that again. <laughs> and I was like, no. You're like, that wasn't the point. No. <laughs> we were point. lucky. We were given a second yeah. chance to make a better decision next time. <laughs> so um, something that is funny is that every time I have spoken with anyone who is a like avid outdoors person, they always say it's great to have a woman in the group to make the call to turn around. Yeah. As long as the group will listen, because for some reason, females have a better habit of saying that's not smart. They have a better risk management, whereas men typically will push a little bit further. Yeah. Women might have the ability to push really far, but they have the critical thinking maybe to not right not to pick on the guys but yeah right I've heard yeah that from men mostly yeah yeah so I yeah. don't mind repeating it because I've been told that by 
professional outdoors men. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and maybe it is just a um, maybe quicker to change expectations and, and adjust, yeah. you know, what you're willing to accept as an okay outcome and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. A little better being like, "Mm, we can do this again next week. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. When the weather's better or these people aren't too tired to go on. Right. Um, So as a leader, it's important to lead by the group and not by like the expectation of what the trip was supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so good to hear these stories too, because you can just see how, you know, how easy it is to make these decisions. And, you know, I, I've been in similar situations where I'm like, well, just a little this, a little that, and I, I can go a little further or, you know, you can get in your own head about it. And instead of sort of taking that pause and being like, okay, I'm sort of at a juncture here. I can like di- dictate the outcome of my fate in this potentially dangerous situation. Which one am I going to choose? <laughs> Which yeah. adventure am I choosing here? Absolutely. Uh, and it's- yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, it's important to to push yourself, but it's also important to recognize like when it's a dangerous idea and a good idea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so obviously you train people in wilderness first aid and also to be uh, wilderness first responders. So I was wondering if you could, uh, for the listeners, describe the dis- difference between these two different types of training and... Um, and what level of training would you recommend for people like outdoor photographers who want to be spending more time in the wilderness? Yeah. Um, I don't currently teach wilderness first responder. Oh, okay. um, I only teach wilderness first aid. Uh, I have my wilderness first responder and my wilderness EMT. Um, I teach EMT courses and wilderness gotcha. first aid courses. Okay. Um, someday I hope to teach woofers, but um, solo needs you to be, I teach for solo stone hearth outdoor learning opportunities. Um, you have to teach woofa level for them for a while before you can apply and take a course to become a woofer okay. instructor. Yep. Um, and it's a longer, more detailed process because it is a two week course. So a woofer or wilderness first responder is a 14 day course. Okay. Um, it's very involved and wilderness first aid is a 16 hour course. So weekend two day course. Um, I would say that if you're just an outdoor enthusiast and you're spending a lot of time outside getting your wilderness first aid and taking a wilderness first aid course is plenty. Yeah. Um, it teaches you a lot. And if it's not something you're using often, the amount of information you obtain in a woofer, if you're not using it all the time, you won't remember it. Yeah. Um, it's like too much information. So if you were to join a search and rescue team or, or something like that, uh, or be a, if you were a guide, like you were constantly out guiding trips where you're going to mm-hmm. see a lot more small injuries, taking that woofer, that higher level is more important. Yeah. But um, if you're just out doing like recreational, then a woofer is, is typically plenty. It teaches you how to recognize and treat um, basic injuries and recognize um, and, and potentially stabilize more serious injuries. Um, and when to call for help and what you can manage in the back country and how to manage it. And the idea between the difference, like between my work on an ambulance and my work on a search and rescue team or with wilderness first aid is that that line of like, when you go into the wilderness type medicine, you're looking at it's more than one hour to get to a hospital or to an ambulance or to a helicopter. So you're managing that injury for more than one hour without definitive care. Right. Um, our, our search and rescue team is kind of like 
we're getting more and more cool toys and experience. And we have a few AEMTs, me, um, we have three or four of us. And so we can actually now bring out fluids and IVs and nitrous oxide for pain management into the woods with us um, to manage someone. So we're kind of bridging that gap of like, well, we can bring front country medicine to you, but we're still going to have to manage you for a few hours. So, and this is, it goes into wilderness again. The, the difference being that um, in the wilderness, the, the priority is stabilization versus treatment? Kind of, yeah. Um, the, you can do more in the wilderness to kind of manage someone as a professional um, than in, like, say I'm in like ambulance, I'm not going to relocate a dislocated shoulder. But as a wilderness first responder, I can do that in the backcountry because if I relocated someone's shoulder, I could walk them out versus gotcha. carry them out. Okay. Um, so it kind of like the the rules change yeah. Um, for your higher level provider. But basically the woofer or the woofa teaches you, sorry, the first aid teaches you how to identify and manage things. So that like, say you get a burn, what do you do? Say yeah. you get a, a broken arm. How do you stabilize that? Um, how do you, how do you handle a, an open fractured bone? Like, oh, well, we want to, bone needs to be war- uh, like warm and dark and, in a wet environment, we need to like create that environment again for it and stabilize the injury and get them out. Um, what do we need to evacuate quickly and what can we play with a little bit? Um, how do we identify an infection that needs to be evacuated versus one we might be able to manage or how do we avoid getting one in the first place kind of thing? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Cool. So I imagine that uh, most, if not all the safety considerations that we talked about today are applicable anywhere in the world, but are there any yeah. special considerations for those people traveling outside of the U.S.? Um, I totally depends on where you're headed, but yeah, um, okay. definitely wherever you decide to go travel, uh, talk to, make sure you talk to like the rangers and the parks that you're going to be at or the rangers for the range you're going to be at. Uh, make sure you do research into their animals, their poisonous animals, like you know, we've got some poisonous snakes and spiders, but not really compared to many places you could go. Right. Um, make sure you know what kind of elevation you're going to. So, you know, if you need to acclimate to that and have more time, like, you know, even if you go out to, if you go out West or you go to the Alps or something, you need to make sure you say, leave a few days to acclimate to going up into elevation. You can't just get there and you know, fly in and hike to 12,000 feet on day one, right. you'll probably get kind of sick. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you want to make sure you leave space for that. So you kind of want to look at where you're going, look at what you need to acclimate for, what kind of insects and bugs and spiders and snakes are there to need to be aware of, what kind of animals are you dealing with? Um, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome tips. Thank you. So uh, I have the experience of, um, Falling through ice into freezing cold water <laughs> oh, no. uh, while doing photography on a, on, it was just in a little stream, but still I got, I submerged oh, yeah. and, um, you know, ice safety is a, a big concern. So what, what are some basic ice safety tips for, like, how do you know how to read the ice or check for the ice to make sure that it is safe to cross or stand on? Um, and, yeah. and if you do fall in, what are some things you should do right away? Absolutely. Um, so if you know you're going to be going on ice. A couple things. I personally, I always assume that ice is not safe unless I know otherwise. So mm-hmm. if 
water is moving underneath the ice, the chance of it being able to hold you all the way across is very low. So I would never walk on a stream or a river. Um, I would find a down tree to shimmy across, Mm -hmm. which usually there's a lot of, so you can like find something to, if you need to cross a river, like find something to go across on the river, not actually on the water itself. Right. Um, in order for ice to be thick enough for a person to walk on and be held up, it needs to be three to four inches thick. Okay. A minimum of three, but it should be four. Okay. Um, so unless you have an ice pick and you have a way or like a drill to drill through and actually measure that ice thickness, it's kind of hard to say definitively. Um, ice is never even across the entire pond or body of water. So it's going to be thinner in spots and thicker in spots. Mm -hmm. Um, a spot that it will definitely be thinner is where any rivers meet up with it because you've got that moving water or exit it. Um, I always give those a very wide berth. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it needs to be six inches thick for an ATV, eight inches thick for a car and 12 inches thick for a pickup truck. Oh, wow. Okay. So if you're not sure, find a different way. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, and, and like seeing a bunch of ice fishermen out on the water, isn't always a great, uh, deciding factor because I've known a lot of ice fishermen that will like take a little extra risk because they do it all the time and they feel a little more, more safe. So, um, and, and what weather patterns, like recent weather patterns are also important. So has it been, was it, you know, 35, 40 degrees two weeks ago. And we've just had like a short two day freeze of, of the cold temps. We need to be below freezing for a few weeks straight in order to say that ice is definitely going to be thick enough. Okay. So like, I would never, I never go on ice until like mid January. And I always keep an eye, like, has there been a weird thaw? And then I'm going to be a lot more wary about ice. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, then if it's been cold for a long time. Yeah. Um, like in the spring, sometimes like ice is nice and thick and it's safe, but you've got slush on top that kind of makes you like, oh my God. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but really, that's like the snow melt on top of the ice. Right. Um, so basically my best ice safety would be definitely don't go on moving water. And if you're not sure, avoid it. And those are the depths, like four inches for people, six for ATVs, eight for car, 12 for pickup. Okay. Um. So if you need to go on ice, maybe have a way to drill through and check it yeah that's a good idea yeah <laughs> and watch those weather patterns yep um so you do fall in the water like, hypothermia interestingly enough can be a problem even in mild temps um it can be 50 degrees cloudy and raining and you can end up with hypothermia wow okay. um it can be the middle of summer if you have an injury or a head injury and you can get hypothermia because your body, you're laying on the ground and the ground is pulling heat from your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so hypothermia can really get you any time of year, not just if you fall in cold water or not just if it's really cold out. Yeah. Um, okay. Definitely more dangerous. But sometimes if you're not prepared for those cold days, spring and fall, um, or even cold summer days, you could be in danger. So yeah. that's why I always pack a puffy if the temperature is borderline or the weather's borderline. Yeah. I definitely like to stay warm. I'm a very cold person. Me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> so if someone's too cold, they're going to develop like in brief, like something called the umbles that I learned that we're teaching for solo. Um, so you're going to mumble. So you're going to mumble your words and slur your speech. Okay. Fumble. So you lose your motor control. Okay. You start to stumble because you start to lose gross motor control and not picking up your feet. And then you tumble or you fall down. 
Gotcha. Um, so what's happening is you're going into a metabolic icebox. Your body's need for oxygen depletes and your body's like creation, it's not creating as much energy, as many energy molecules. Everything is slowing down. Okay. Um, like a sloth moves nice and slow. Your body right. is going like, Oh, I don't need to do this anymore. Right. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> you need to like, if you're starting to get cold, um, you start to make poor decisions. It really affects your ability to make good decisions. So if you notice yourself getting cold or you think you might get cold, bundle up before that happens. Yeah. And, and then you want to eat sugary snacks and salty snacks because carbohydrates are your main source of fuel. So you eat those sugary snacks and your body's metabolism starts to wake up. Okay. And then you can start doing like, if you're standing up, do some jumping jacks. You can get into like a sleeping bag or a whoopee and do like sit-ups, crunches, leg lifts, um, move around and turn your metabolism on, get your heart rate up, get yourself warm yeah. and then drink some warm sugary foods. You can do like hot chocolate or warm jello packets, which is disgusting sounding. Yeah. So I try to go like more the hot chocolate route. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but jello packets are very sugary. So they can be a good option, even though they're kind of nasty. Yeah. Um, warm jello. Yeah. But um and you can preheat your sleeping bag with like a warm water bottle so you don't get cold. Um, or you can warm it up. Never snuggle with a hypothermic person. Always remove all the wet clothes. Okay. And get down to the dry stuff um, or get into something dry because the you can't warm up if you're wet. And right. then, yeah. Some you'll hear like, oh, you know, get into the sleeping bag with them and you can warm someone up. I definitely heard that on TV shows growing up. Don't yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just not effective. You won't. Yeah. You'll end up hypothermic too. So oh. if, so like, say you're, uh, Cold bleachers at a hockey game are probably the best way to describe it. So you sit on a cold bleacher, right? Your body heat is going to leave you and enter the bleacher until you and the bleacher are the same temp. Right. So you take someone who's really cold, like say they're only 92 or 95 degrees even, and your body is going to, you're only 97 degrees. Well, now you're both going to be too cold. Right. You okay. don't have enough heat to give them to warm you both up. That makes so sense. Yeah. You can you can get in the sleeping bag and do some crunches then get out and put them in it to right. warm the sleeping bag up ahead of time, but don't ever be in that with them. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Um, I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. And so they're not. And so if someone's like really, really cold and you're not responsive, they're not dead till they're warm and dead. So call the search and rescue team and they need to go to a hospital. People have been saved from very cold temperatures. Okay. Um, down in the low. Oh, what was the coldest? I could go look it up. Um, I think the coldest someone's been brought back is like, I want to say in the 60 degree Fahrenheit oh my range, word. like really cold. Wow. Um, <laughs> so you can bring people back from really cold temperatures. Yeah. Okay. Um, hyperthermia, we're moving into summer. So being too hot is also really dangerous. Yeah. Um, it's actually, it might be more dangerous because like when you're in a metabolic ice box, you can be saved from really cold temps. But when you get too hot, you hit that like 104 to 107 degree temp, your brain and your organs like kind of cook. Yeah. Um, so unlike being in a metabolic ice box, you're just in an oven. Right. Yeah. Um, Proteins start to denature and that sort of thing. Yeah. So when you have dehydration as a first similar, could be like a first sign or heat cramps, getting like big muscle cramps, mm -hmm. um, you want to start to hydrate 
and you need to hydrate with something other than just water. You need electrolytes, which are calcium, magnesium, um, chloride, sodium, and potassium. So like your cable salt and then potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Um, and so sports drinks are a great way to do that. Like Powerade, Gatorade, um, they carry all of that and they also have carbohydrates to boost your metabolism. Okay. Um, I carry, I have like electrolyte drops that I get off Amazon and you just put those in a water bottle with some lemon juice. My husband adds maple syrup, but I think then it tastes bad. Mm -hmm. Um, and now my water is like worth more. So my water has more to it than just water because when you sweat, you sweat out those electrolytes. Yeah. Um, yeah. so watch your color of your pee. If it's getting dark straw and then dark colored, you're definitely dehydrated. Um, pickle juice and yellow mustard packets can also help relieve um, muscle cramps very quickly because they really? have a high concentration of the sodium. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they hand them out at Spartan races and it's a marathon. Oh my gosh. Um, and then when you move into heat stroke and heat exhaustion, you're looking at a person who is basically got a fever from being active or too hot. Um, and their body temperature is going to be above a hundred. And when you're in heat stroke, it's like 104 to 107 degrees. That's way okay. too warm, right? If someone had yeah. a fever from having the flu, we'd be worried about them. So we need to be worried about them and rapidly cool them. If it's from doing exercise outside, that can be a quick way to die. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the person might be a little bit pale or hot and clammy if they're heat exhaustion level but if their heat stroke level they're going to be dry because they're not going to be sweating because they don't have any more water to sweat gotcha and they're going to be red and confused and combative and irritated irritable and probably vomiting Um, and they might have diarrhea so that's going to get even more water out of their system so the best thing to do is to get them cooled down so into the shade pour water on them if there's a stream nearby you can sit with them in the stream but never put someone who's confused or altered or lethargic um, in water without holding them because they could pass out and drown. Right. Um, They wouldn't be able to hold themselves up. So you can sit with them in a cold stream or a cold lake. Um, And then if you have symptoms of heat stroke or heat exhaustion, it's important to avoid any activity in the heat for a while. My husband and I were mountain biking in the desert in Moab, Utah, a few years back. And we were doing a trail called Slick Rock. If anyone's ever heard of that, it's really mm-hmm. fun, but it was hot out. It was over a hundred degrees. Oh my and word. we had, you know, we had all of our electrolytes and we had extra, extra water, um, but there's not a lot of shade. And he got a little bit of mild heat exhaustion, low urine output, dark color, red, a little clammy, a little um, like a headache, dizzy, yeah. um, nauseous, uh, not doing great. So we, for the rest of the week, we would get up at like three or four in the morning and climb our bike early before the sun would get hot at 10 AM. And then we would hang out in the pool or like go shopping for the afternoon and then maybe do an activity in the evening when it would cool off. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's important to avoid that heat danger because you, once you have a heat injury, you can easily get one again. Okay. Sort of like a concussion. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sort of. Yeah. All right. Well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing like a lightning round, a rapid fire round? Sure. Okay. <laughs> so just the first thing that comes to mind, no no overthinking or anything like that. Sure. 
Okay. So what's one piece of safety gear that never leaves your pack? Oh, uh, never leaves my bag. Probably my miniature tiny first aid kit, just like my, my little kit of first aid equipment with my EpiPens. Yeah. Nice. Uh, what is your favorite trail food for long hikes? Ooh, well, due to my allergies, I would say for me, it's a modified trail mix. Okay. I can't eat nuts or peanuts. So what do you put in it? Um, I usually do pretzels, chips, M&Ms and sunflower seeds. And like, Mm. what are the seeds that you use to make hummus? Um, Chickpeas? Chickpeas. Thank you. I I get um, roasted chickpeas because they're protein packed too. Yeah. Nice. Um, So something with protein, fats and carbohydrates and salt. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Because fats and carbs are our two main energy sources and um, salt is our main electrolyte source. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I avoid caffeine. Okay, that's good to know. Because you'll get the jitters. And if you're bonking and tired, no caffeine. Um, caffeine will just make you feel worse. Typically. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Um, what would you rather do? Hiking, climbing, or backcountry skiing? Ooh. That's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Climb or backcountry ski? Just depends on the season. Okay. (laughs) Uh, What is one lesson you wish every outdoor enthusiast would learn? To, uh, I think, I think it's most important to learn to be prepared in the wilderness, like what to bring with you and trail etiquette. Yeah. Which we didn't talk much about, but. Yeah, we can, we'll have to have you back on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and last question, what does connecting with nature mean to you? I I find nature to be like the most natural place to be. And it has a lot of different, different um, meanings for me. Um, it's just a really great way to not only connect with the environment around me and observe animals in their like most natural place, but it gives me like a sense of of freedom and a sense of being connected with the earth and being connected with myself and in some situations, even being connected with like loved ones that are no longer with me. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I kind of totally relate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, Courtney, this has been so much fun and really, really informative. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share all of this knowledge with us today. And so Thank you again for for being on the show. Um, do you have any upcoming courses or anything like that that our listeners might be interested in? And if so, what would be the best way for people to either find out more or to connect with you? Yeah. Um, so two ways. Uh, if you, I'm going to have some wilderness first aid courses scheduled, and there are wilderness first aid courses scheduled all over the country, depending on where you are listening. Okay. Um, so as much as I'd love to just have everyone, that's not always practical. Um, <laughs> but if you go to Solo's website, so if you Googled Stone Hearth Outdoor Learning Opportunities, the Solo website will come up. Okay. And you can go to their website and they will have um, a list of courses offered all over the country and I think even internationally okay. um, that you can sign up for. Oh, excellent. And I'm going to have a couple more coming up in Kellington, Vermont. I haven't set dates yet, but I'm going to soon. I'm going to have one in late summer and one in the fall. Okay. Um, right here in Kellington. 
Great. And so if you go to Solo's website, those things will be listed there. Okay, great. And then once those dates come out, I'll definitely put all of those mm-hmm. into the show notes so that people can find them easily. Thanks. And then if there are any people that have kids or um, kids listening, I have two camps coming up this summer Ooh. in the central Vermont region for 14 to 18 year olds. Nice. They're week long camps that do um, basic like wilderness leadership where you l- earn your wilderness first aid, your CPR certifications. And we are going to do, um, there's one in July and one in June. Um, and we're going to do also, uh, basic land navigation, shelter building and fire starting as our activities. Oh, nice. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm excited for them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and I hope that, uh, this isn't the last time that we chat. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Yeah, of course. All right. I hope you took a lot of notes. That was a ton of valuable information. So thank you, Courtney, for coming on the show and sharing that all with us. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I appreciate you and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. If you want to get your own certification in wilderness first aid or other levels of training, be sure to check out the courses that Courtney teaches at soloschools.com, which has both online and in-person programs. You can also find the link to Solo and all of the other information mentioned today in the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode 15. We have several exciting guests coming up on the podcast, including photographer and award-winning writer Charles Bergman, to discuss his quest to photograph every species of penguin in the world and his book that documents his journeys. And shortly after that, We'll chat with full-time outdoor photographer, writer, publisher, speaker, and instructor, Colleen Minnick, about cultivating a creative mindset, visual perception, conceptual blending, and more. Are you loving the Outdoor Photography Podcast? If so, you can help support the show by either leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by buying me a coffee through the link in the episode description. You can think of it sort of like a tip jar. It's an easy way to say thanks. And it helps me produce and continually improve the show. And I greatly appreciate all of you who have already shown your support. Thank you so much. The podcast has been really fun experience for me. And I'm so glad that it is having a positive impact. And I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll also answer a couple of your submitted questions. If you'd like to submit a question to be answered on Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in the episode description or go to outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash podcast and you'll be able to record your short message. Till then, get outside my friends safely and find yourself a little nature. Take care.